0: We were at Nazareth Village here in the Galilee region of Israel. We got to experience what life would have been like at Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. And we got to experience specifically what that would have been like in the first century AD at the open-air museum of Nazareth Village. So let's quickly recap what happened there. While at Nazareth Village, we saw a model of what Joseph's workshop could have looked like with all kinds of tools, and even a primitive drill. Next door, there was the kitchen of Mary. We saw the blazing fire and a pot hanging over it, ready to cook whatever had been collected from the fields. There were some amazing fruits and vegetables sitting out on the counter, too. You know, Israel's is a blessed land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's something that God, God said would happen. And that still rings true today. Israel is so fertile and the best fruits and veggies that I've ever tasted have been from Israel. I think it's a testament to God's promise that he would be with his people, the Jews, and then bring them back to the land of Israel, which is so fruitful today as it was thousands of years ago. We also saw the weaver at her loom. She would have had to work hard to make garments and blankets. You know, first the sheep had to get sheared, and then their matted wool, you know, they were obviously rolling around in things in the fields and whatnot, so all of their matted wool had to be washed, and it had to be unknotted, too. And then finally she could dye it and spin it. And then came even more work, because with the wool, the weaver had to go back and forth, up and down on her loom, to make a strong pattern that would hold up to the elements. If it were a piece of clothing, Or maybe it was a blanket, and it would have to be nice and warm. We also got to see a first century olive press. A bunch of olives would have been dumped into this trough-like stone, and a donkey would have been attached to another huge stone that sat in the groove of this also big trough-like stone. And then the donkey could have crushed the olives as he walked around in a circle, and this would have released the valuable olive oil. It was quite a prized oil back then, And I guess you could say it still is uh, in our day to some extent. You know, wine was also very important in the first century. Uh, We know a lot of Jesus' personal life stories and parables uh, that he told uh, include wine. We can think about the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. Or maybe Jesus' parable about the danger of putting new wine into old wineskins. Wine was an important part of first century life. And to collect wine, grapes had to be picked and then thrown into the wine press, which wasn't quite as high-tech as the olive press. You know, all the grapes were just thrown into this depression in a Iraq and stamped on, danced on by people. And this would separate the grape juice from the skins of the grapes, and the grape juice could be collected and then fermented to become wine. We also had the opportunity to see a very cool first-century replica synagogue, it's the only one currently in existence. And the fascinating takeaway for me from the synagogue was its design. Instead of having everyone face towards, uh, face towards the front where someone could teach, the seats lie in the perimeter of the building so everyone could see one another. And of course, this fits with the word for synagogue, Beit Knesset in Hebrew, meaning house of gathering. So the synagogue was an important place of worship. But that wasn't it. You know, today we think of synagogue as a Jewish house of worship. But a synagogue could also be converted to be a community center, a school, or even a courthouse. It was simply a place where the people gathered. And since religion was a fundamental part of Jewish life, it only makes sense that the term synagogue, which doesn't have a religious meaning per se, uh, would come to be thought of as a church by those outside of Judaism. When I learned about this, something back home made a lot more sense. See, I don't live in a Jewish community. There are definitely those in the United States. We can think about New York, uh, Los Angeles, and Chicago, which are home to some of the biggest Jewish communities in the United States. But my town back home in South Carolina is not that. It has a few non-practicing Jews, so I was always confused why my town had a synagogue, because the Jews who did use it weren't even religious. Why would they maintain a synagogue? I remember once having an orchestra concert there because the Beth Israel congregation was kind enough to let us use their building. And it all made sense. Once I learned about the term synagogue, meaning house of gathering. Even though the Jews in my town are not religious, they, um, or I guess it would be Jews from the 1900s who lived in my town um, because the synagogue is over 100 years old, but, but they, who use it today, have this synagogue as a gathering place for them to come together. They'll use it to play bingo and host book club and allow the community to use it for events. And this is the true nature of a synagogue. While all the synagogues we'll see here in Israel will probably be used exclusively for the practice of Judaism, it's interesting to consider how that synagogue back in my hometown embodies the true meaning of synagogue, house of gathering. Well, back to Nazareth Village, after we saw the synagogue, we headed back to the bus, but not before stopping to enjoy an authentic first-century meal. Between the chicken, fire-baked bread, hummus, other dips and spices and fresh fruit, it's hard to choose a favorite. I could literally eat that meal on the daily. But although I know some people will strongly disagree with me, it's a contentious topic, I did love the black olives that were freshly picked from the olive trees. After our time at Nazareth Village, we drove over to the Church of the Annunciation, which we're going to put to the test on our authenticity meter. We're currently standing outside, so let's walk over to the entrance and prepare to see this site here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. So this is a church that has been built over what is believed to be Mary's home, according to Catholic tradition. Now, Luke 1 from the Bible does tell us that Mary was at Nazareth when Gabriel came, the angel Gabriel, when he came to announce to her that she would carry the Christ child. So it's possible that she could have been at home. Well, let's dig into the story of the Annunciation from Luke 1 to orient ourselves before we continue. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth being Mary's cousin, or at least some sort of relative and carrying John the Baptist, Wow. It's cool to be able to read that passage from the Bible as we stand in at least the vicinity of where that took place. So, a few things as we begin to analyze this site. First, I don't see anywhere in the text where it says that Mary was at home. It just says that she was at Nazareth when Gabriel came to her. So, the Annunciation could have happened anywhere in Nazareth, technically, and we'll get to more on that discrepancy later. Second, let's just take away the question of whether or not we're about to see Mary's childhood home and just reflect on what she said. I mean, she was a servant of the Lord and willing to obey him. She was scared, as anyone to whom an angel comes and tells them that they will carry Jesus Christ would be. The angel is just listing off what Jesus will become, ending with, His kingdom will never end. What kind of man is this? What kind of man can have an unending kingdom? Well, Gabriel answers that she will carry the Son of God. That's who can have an unending kingdom. Mary is utterly shocked and in disbelief. But as we talked about last time, she responds in utter faith I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And as I said, This is captured, her response, that is, it's captured so well in a Hebrew word, hineni. We learned last time that it means, here am I. It's a prayer to God, showing that you are submissive to his will. And that's exactly what Mary here is saying. She doesn't question God's plan for her. She willingly accepts as his servant, hineni, here am I. We could spend so much time discussing Mary's faith, But I want to return to the church we're standing in front of right now. Let me share some background on this church. The mother of Constantine, the Holy Roman Emperor, came to Israel and wanted to verify some important sites. We'll remember from our stop at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that's the site where Jesus was crucified, that it makes sense to actually be the location where Jesus died. Remember, Constantine's mother came a few hundred years after Jesus' death to the Holy Land. And when she asked the Romans to take her to the site of Jesus' crucifixion, why would they have steered her wrong? They probably knew where the site was because it was a major crucifixion site. Of course, you have to keep in mind that Jesus was not special to the Romans who crucified him. He was just another criminal who hung on the cross in the area they had designated for crucifixions outside the city. The Romans killed so many criminals with crucifixion. And all that goes to say is that I think Constantine's mother gave us the accurate site for the crucifixion of Christ. Constantine's mother, Helena is her name, also got a church erected in Bethlehem just outside of Jerusalem, about 20 minutes by car. And that's where it's where Jesus was born according to the Bible. And, and we got to see, actually a, a while ago on one of our tours when we first came to Israel, we got to see that Church of the Nativity. Um, and I expressed that I couldn't get behind that being the actual site of Jesus' birth. There just isn't a good reason like there is with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Even though Helena came there, uh, it wasn't quite like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There weren't dumping grounds for bodies that were marked. So it seems strange to ask around and expect people from hundreds of years after Jesus' birth to know where he was born, especially because he wasn't considered anything special when he was born. So that's Helena's story. She came to Israel and was influential in marking spots that were important in the life of Jesus. Oh, and I should also mention, in case you're wondering why it looks so big and nice and modern, this church that we're standing in front of right now, Um, You should note that the current Church of the Annunciation was actually completed in 1969. Constantine, based on his mother's recommendation, had a church built over this this site, believed to be Mary's home, but it was destroyed in the Muslim conquest of the 7th century. So other churches continued to be built, uh, but they were subsequently destroyed, and a lot of that happened in the Middle Ages, a lot of building and then deconstruction. But now we have the church before us right now, completed in 1969, which is the Church of the Annunciation. Quite beautiful. Well, now let's return to our question here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Where does the church, and specifically the site within the church, believed to be Mary's house, where the angel Gabriel is, is thought to have come and told Mary she would be the mother of Christ, Where does this spot land on the authenticity meter? Is it leaning to the side of likely the spot, like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Or is it leaning to the side of probably not, like the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem? Well, I want to investigate a few more areas before I share my answer. Like I said, we know Mary was at Nazareth when Gabriel came to her. We're in the right area, so that's a good start. But any place in Nazareth could have been Mary's home within limitation. Um, Well, we do know that Mary and Joseph were poor, and specifically I can tell you this because of the animals they brought for sacrifice when they dedicated Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. They offered either a pair of turtle doves or a pair of, of two young pigeons. Let's actually quickly see what the Torah, the Old Testament, has to say on this these are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl but if she cannot afford a lamb that is a lamb for sacrifice for dedication of the new child if she cannot afford that she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering so we know that mary and joseph did that they couldn't afford the lamb so they brought the doves and pigeons Because Mary and Joseph didn't bring the prescribed lamb, we're clued in to a little bit about their background. That is kind of their socioeconomic status, you could say. So Mary's home at Nazareth could not have been super nice. Well, the home we'll see in the basement of the church isn't super nice. It's basically a cave. So I guess that makes it fit within that parameter concerning wealth. But how can we say this is the exact spot? especially when Helena only said this was the spot of the Annunciation after she came to Nazareth and found a shrine inside a cave that pilgrims had been coming to and treating as Mary's home. Hmm. And as we read from Luke 1, the Bible isn't specific as to whether Mary is at home or maybe out and about when Gabriel came to her. So honestly, I don't think that we can say this is the exact spot of the Annunciation, and for that reason, it fails the authenticity meter. See, the Annunciation's location is a tradition. And I should mention that there is even a discrepancy between Catholic and Greek Orthodox tradition. There are actually two churches that commemorate the Annunciation here in Nazareth. Like I've said, Catholic tradition holds that Gabriel came to Mary's home, which is said to be inside the basilica here. And so we're standing right in front of the more popular site for the Annunciation, the Basilica of the Annunciation. But Greek Orthodox tradition holds that Mary was drawing water from a spring when Gabriel came to her. And so they built the Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation over that still-running spring. We won't be checking out that church today. While I can't rule it out, because the Bible tells us that Mary was simply somewhere in Nazareth when Gabriel came to her, we don't have a ton of daylight left, and so we're just going to take a look at the church from the Catholic tradition, which is the uh, more popular site. So again, I can't get behind any one of these churches as the actual site of the Annunciation, but I do appreciate what men have tried to do. Traditions like these that mark physical locations are important because they give us something to hang stories on uh, inside our brain, on our mental hooks, you could say. When we're able to visualize a spot, even if it's perhaps not accurate to the T, but it's in the general location, the story comes to life. You know, we're about to head down to the cave that was perhaps Mary's home, and you'll never read the story of the Annunciation again without thinking back to this location, You'll now have an idea, at least, of what Mary's home could have been like, and that's significant. So let's go ahead and head inside the church and make our way down the stairs here. Follow me. Now we are approaching the very bottom of the church, the grotto of the Annunciation. You can see that the main structure here is a cave. And it's kind of been beautified over the years. The altar in the middle wouldn't have been there originally, nor the mosaic floors, and you can see some of the stones, probably from Constantine's first church, at this location. But if you squint a little, you can almost see the original cave without all the decorations. Maybe you can imagine Mary moving about in here, accomplishing her daily tasks. And maybe, just maybe, this is actually the location where the angel Gabriel came from heaven to tell Mary that she would carry Jesus Christ. Well, let's head back outside and maybe find some dinner here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. As we walk, let's work on our Hebrew. Well, will maybe calm our stomachs a little bit. I know you guys are getting hungry. Last time we worked on just one word, hineni, which is a prayer to God meaning, here am I a prayer showing that you are God's servant. I was thinking about other places in the Bible in which that word appears because I wanted to show it to you. While Mary's attitude reflects Hanani, she doesn't directly say it, but it does show up in Isaiah 6:8. The prophet Isaiah hears the Lord asking whom he shall send to speak to the Israelites. And Isaiah says, And I said, Here am I, send me. So we hear that, here am I, that hineni. Well, for this week's Hebrew lesson, I wanted to continue along our more uh, spiritual or religious focus on the Hebrew language, as that's a large part of our tour here in Israel. And last week, we learned that prayer to God. So this week, I want to teach you the meaning of a word you've probably heard before, maybe in a Christian song or something. The word is Elohim. Say it with me, Elohim. Elohim. This word does mean God, it it refers to God, but we know that God has many names because he takes on many roles and can do anything as the infinite, omnipotent, all-knowing God. Elohim means God as the creative one with creative power. He created the world we live in and he especially created all of us. So We're direct benefactors, so to speak, of of Elohim, God as the creative one with the creative power. We'll continue to review our other Hebrew phrases next time, but for now, we're outside this special restaurant. It's a bit of a surprise. Let's all shuffle in. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail on Radio Free Hillsdale in 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure in the land of Israel.